How's it going, Hope Church? It is good to be with you this weekend, and uh, we're, we're in the middle of this series, Objection, and I've been fighting this because every time I say that objection, I just want to like yell it, because that's, that's kind of the point of the series, right? These are, the, these are these questions that we just wrestle with. These are the, these things that uh, are these hard questions that we face that we don't know exactly how to answer. And so with this series, each week and we're just taking, uh, uh, each week and we're taking one of these questions, just kind of wrestling with them, right? Because these are questions that we've all faced. Maybe we've, a lot of them we've asked ourselves. A lot of these questions are the ones that we actually really hope no one asks of us because we're not quite sure how to answer them. And so these are, these are big questions. And the objection that we're looking at this weekend is, is, how come there's so much suffering and evil in the world? If God is good and God is loving, how come there's so much suffering? Now, now keep in mind that all of these questions are, are big questions. All these are, are huge questions that we can't possibly completely answer in, in the time we've got together on the weekend. And so we're just kind of scratching the surface of these, and we really want to encourage you uh, to continue to dig into God's Word, right? We want to encourage you to continue these conversations in relationship throughout the week, and continue these conversations in your life group as you kind of wrestle through some of these questions. But this question is, is fairly easy, because in the news this week, just in, in our part of the world, there's been suffering, right? There's, in the news, we see it all the time, right? You turn on the news in the evening just to try to see if there's going to be school tomorrow, and, and you, you hear all the stories of, of what's going on just in our state, in our region. And there's stories of missing people, and there's murders, and there's rape, and there's, there's people losing their houses um, because of flooding and frozen pipes or fires, Right? There, there are car accidents and people dying. There's so much suffering. Right? And then that, that's just in our little part of the world. And if you watch further into the news and it gets on to uh, around our country and around our world. And there's all the stories of, of war. And there's the slaughter of helpless people, and uh, there's earthquake, and there's tsunamis, there's natural disasters, there's drought, there's famines, and the list goes on and on and on. Our world is filled with suffering and horrible things. And so when we gather together each weekend, we talk about a good, all-powerful, loving God. Now, let me take this maybe even a little bit closer to home. When I sit at home and talk with my kids about how much God loves them, and I tell them that God is greater than everything, and that above all else, God is good. And yet my kids see other kids in town going without food, or they see other kids in town who are wandering around without adequate clothing to keep warm. Or they come down, they hear the stories on the news of, of people being abducted or, or getting lost, or they hear the stories of people dying, or they wrestle with the truth in our own family of loved ones who have battled cancer and died. And so my kids see this question, 
How can a good, loving God allow so much suffering to exist? It's one of the big questions that we all face, that we all wrestle with, because we, on one hand, talk about a good, all-powerful, loving God, and yet we look around us in a world that is falling to pieces. There's an 18th century Scottish philosopher named David Hume, and and he asked this same question, and, and he put it this way, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able to? Then he's impotent. Is he able to, but not willing, then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing, then why is there evil? Right, if God is all-powerful, if he is good, then how can evil exist? How can a loving God allow sin and suffering and evil to exist? Because if he loves us, wouldn't he take care of us? If God is good, then how can evil be there? You see, this problem, unlike some of the others that we're going to look at in this series, I, I think this, this, this problem is personal. Right? Some of us here uh, like to, to think and wrestle with big thoughts. And, um, and, and so this series, probably a lot of people are looking at this series and being like, ooh, that's going to be a fun one. Right? And some of us are not so much. But with the issue of suffering and evil, this is, this is personal. We all feel this. There isn't a family in this church who hasn't experienced suffering and wrestled with these questions. Maybe you're sitting here in this room right now wrestling with this very question in the midst of suffering or having just hard things going on in your life and you're asking God, why? We're asking God, where are you? But let's take a moment, even though this is a very personal question, and, and I think the answer to it is personal, but I also want to just look at it for a moment um, from a logical perspective. Because I think a lot of the, the philosophers who have argued against God and use this problem as a way to say, well, God can't exist, right? Because a loving God couldn't allow all this to happen. I, I think they, they fall flat with their arguments and, and the same point every time. Because to call something evil or wrong, we're assuming that there's a good or a right. And this gets to the point that Pastor Matt wrestled with last week as we kicked off this series. And if you weren't here uh, last weekend at any of the services, so you didn't hear uh, that, that message, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it. Because it really does kind of set uh, the ground for all the other arguments that we're talking about. Because to call something wrong or evil or, or not right has to assume that there is a good or there is a right way to do things. Right? There's a moral code that we're assuming to make that argument. Where does it come from? And as we, we think about that question, I think we, we also have to acknowledge that there's, there's different types of, of evil and suffering in the world, and, and it really can be broken down into two categories, and, and the categories are really defined by where they, where they come from, what it causes them. And the first category would be moral evil. And moral evil could simply be summed up as all the evil and suffering that is caused by us, by people. 
Right? When, when we do evil to one another, when we lie to one another, when we, uh, when we hurt one another, when we kill, steal, cheat, injure, all of those things, suffering and evil is a result of that, but it's, it's brought on by ourselves, by one another. So again, we would turn on the news and, and you watch all these things happen, and, and so many of them can be broke down that moral evil because somebody chose to wrong someone else. And we all know that when we do things, it has a ripple effect, right? We cause things that affect other people. The second category is natural evil. And this would just be when all the bad things happen in our world. Right? When, when we look at all the, the natural events happening in our world, the, the weather, right? I think we can all look back on the past couple of weeks and just talk about all the suffering that has been caused in Dubuque. Because of the weather, right? Some of you may be nursing sore spots because there's ice and gravity. And us and ice and gravity don't seem to go well together. And my kids think it's awesome. Our driveway is a skating rink and they're having fun, right? But also, the, I mean, earthquakes, outbreaks of disease, cancer, these things that, that happen in our world. And it's not someone's fault, right? But these natural events that are happening. And so with a quick look at the world, we see all of that, that, that evil exists, that suffering exists, that bad things are happening, and so we come back to this question. So if all this is here, and so many people come to this conclusion, well, all this bad thing, I can't trust this loving God if He allows all of this. Now, and we're, we're just talking in very general terms now, but we could all, maybe in, in conversation with one another, start to break it down and, and, and start to put names to things. I have a hard time trusting God because look what happened to so-and-so. And, and the, you know, this person was such a great person and look what happened to him. Or how can I uh, uh, come to grips with just the evil I see and yet say that there's a good God? And this, this question is actually, uh, this is the question that drove C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, to God. It was wrestling with the same very question. It was the same uh, logical problem that many philosophers have come to. And and C.S. Lewis came to that problem. And this is how he put it. And he wrote it in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that this was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. And C.S. Lewis saw the point where there's this, this moral code that he was arguing against. And he was assuming that there was this this baseline of right or just or good, and that was what was causing him to see that there was suffering and there was unjust aspects of our world, and that was his problem with God, yet he saw that that had to come from somewhere. So this place where all these philosophical arguments fall flat is that God, that good doesn't require the absence of evil to exist. As Augustine points out, evil is a parasite of good. 
In other words, good exists, but evil is just the absence of good or the destruction of good. Much in the same way that a hole is the absence of dirt, right? Or a hole in my shirt is the absence of fabric there because something has torn it apart, something has taken out of it. And that's what evil is. It's, the, it's a, a parasite of good. And so many of these philosophical arguments assume that for good to exist, it has to completely wipe out evil, or that if there is evil, then good can exist. And so the existence of evil and suffering doesn't prove that God does not exist. Like the atheist would argue. Or that the existence of evil shows that God is limited in His power. Or even that He is both good and evil in Himself, as Hindus or Buddhists would argue, that, that God is both. And so what does this question bring us to? And, and I want to spend our, our time together uh, looking at, at four things, four parts of the answer. Of, of how, we, how we handle this question. And I think the first one, and it's just the first baseline point is this. The Bible doesn't ignore the problem of suffering. I think too often in our churches uh, today, or in Christian relationships, we just kind of gloss over sin and suffering and evil. And we paint following Jesus this like shiny, happy path. Yeah, that's not what we see in God's Word. God's Word, uh, from beginning to end, we see suffering. We see sin throughout. And we see this struggle throughout the Bible. Now, look at the beginning. Genesis 1, God creates everything and He says it was good. And just three chapters in, evil enters the world. In Romans 5.12, it said this way, Death came to all people because all have sinned. And so in God's Word, we see that sin is the source of all evil and suffering. Everything was good, and then sin entered the world. And all of history since that point has been affected by that. Moving on from Adam and Eve, we get Cain and Abel. We get Noah and the flood. We get Pharaoh and the Israelites in slavery. We see wicked kings in Israel like Ahab and Jezebel and King Amon. We see the murder of the prophets Moving into the New Testament, we see the killing of all the children in Israel after the birth of Jesus. We see the crucifixion. We see the persecution of the church. We just, from beginning to end, there is suffering throughout God's Word. The psalmist would ask the question, in fact, so many of the psalms are, are, are David wrestling with this question. Crying out, how long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? How long, O oh Lord, will you be silent? Right? Where are you? And so I think one of the first questions that we, we come to when we ask this question of how can there be a God if there's so much suffering and evil is, is that unlike uh, some other faith traditions, some other religions, Jesus never hid from the truth, from the fact that there's suffering in the world. In fact, Jesus entered into it, and we see that throughout God's Word, that the suffering is a part of creation, but it's pointed at its beginning is in sin. 
We'll come back a little bit as we move on uh, to that, but, but I think we rest in that, that the Bible attacks suffering head on, and we see it. I think the second part of the answer is this, that God uses suffering to accomplish His purpose. Again, this is the logical step that many who want to argue against the existence of God skip over. And this is the question they, they, they avoid. Could a loving, all-powerful God allow suffering and evil to exist if it's accomplishing a greater good? Right? Could God be using suffering and evil to accomplish His greater good? You see, the Bible teaches that God loved us. And it shows because He gave us free will. Right? In the garden, Adam and Eve had the choice. They had a freedom to choose to obey God and do what He said or not. And we're all given that same choice. We're all given that same freedom of what we're going to do. And the consequence of this free will is, is disobedience. Now, we see sin as that disobedience running from God, choosing to do our own thing, and the consequence of that has been all of the suffering and evil that has plagued our world ever since. And that required a redemptive plan to restore creation. And as we see at that first point, we see suffering throughout the Bible from beginning to end, and the reality is all of, all of God's history has been point out that redemptive plan that he has put in place. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that God came to put everything right, and he's in the process of making all things right. And so on the grand scale, we can, we can grasp that, right? When we're just talking about the, in, in the big picture, all of sin throughout history was caused, or all of evil and suffering in all of history was caused by sin. Jesus entered into the world to be the Savior and is going to make it right. But on the small scale, on the personal scale, how do we wrestle with that, right? We also know that suffering helps accomplish things on the small scale. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that, the, that, that to prove the genuineness of your faith. And so Peter's writing that, that these trials are what's proving our faith. And, and we know this to be true, right? We know that hardship and suffering are sometimes some of the best teachers. Right? We even talk about like the school of hard knocks, right? That I learned the hard way, right? We, we know that to be true in our own life, and, and we see that happen in, in maybe in our own lives or others where we train, and we put our body through something, right? Last year, my wife wanted to run a half marathon. She suffered to accomplish a goal. She trained hard to accomplish something. Right? I've got, we've got some friends who, who paid off all of their debt. 
right? The process of getting to that point, they made a lot of hard choices. And they, they suffered financially on purpose for a time so that they could have freedom. Right? We've all done that in some aspect of our life where we've suffered through things to accomplish something. Right? We're working towards going. P- parents, you do this, right? Have you ever allowed your children to learn a hard lesson? Right? You allow them suffering, probably watching, you know, and I'm learning this now as my kids get older that some of those lessons are a little bit harder to, to let them learn. Right? But, but you watch them, right? I remember when my kids were little and it's, they, they weren't aware of me, but I'm like, four feet away, like ready to swoop in, but ready to let them learn, right? That they've got to figure out that, you know, when you drop things, they fall, or when they let go of things, they fall. You know, there's those lessons that we learn. And so a loving God gave us freedom to make that choice. He didn't force us to obey, but He lets us go like a prodigal son, waiting for us to choose Him. And come running back. I think we also struggle with the idea of suffering because we inadvertently put ourselves in the place of God. You see, when we argue that a loving God wouldn't allow suffering, we experience it or see it that we're operating out of that place of God because we're in a limited perspective. Who's to say that what I consider suffering or bad things Somebody else doesn't, right? Because I'm putting myself in that ultimate perspective saying, I, I think I see everything working out and it's unjust or unfair or suffering because it negatively impacts me. Because I'm the center of the universe. Right? And even just on a simple scale, you think about this. Parents, this week, how did the news about school being canceled affect you? I can tell you, Emily and I were laying there in bed, and we got the text, and it was just like, yay, right? And we immediately went into, like, trying to replan the day. Okay, we've got the suffering, here we go, day, I don't know, 700 of snow delays or whatever, right? But you're, like, in the midst of that, and then the kids come breaking in, and they get that same news from their perspective. They did not see that as suffering, Right? We could go across the hall over here to the other side of the building and we could talk to all the kids and Hope Kids and ask them about the suffering of Thursday being no school. And I think we'd get a very different perspective. But think about it. One woman weeps at the news that her husband had died in a car accident. And at that same time, another mother praises God because her child is finally receiving the heart transplant that he desperately needs. And so who are we to judge suffering? Right? We experience it. It doesn't take away the pain, but when we try to understand evil and suffering in the world, we're doing it from a, a limited perspective. We're not God. Joseph suffered in slavery, and yet God used that to save the Israelites. The church in Jerusalem was persecuted and the Christians were scattered, and yet God used that to spread churches throughout all of the known world. God is working out history for His glory. 
But I think it goes deeper than that. Right? Because on top of that fact, we have this, that God understands and has experienced suffering. Right? This is where we start to come to the good news. Right? That God entered into His creation, into our mess. Right? This is Christmas and Easter all wrapped together. Right, that Jesus came to earth, came into our world. He experienced suffering. He experienced pain. He experienced hardship. He experienced betrayal and all of those things. And he willingly went to the cross for us. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, we have a high priest who has suffered like us. And that's why we can read in Psalms where the psalmist says that God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalms 34, 14. Or that He is a comforter. Psalms 23, 4. Psalms 119, 76. Right? We see this lived out when Jesus was on earth. He had compassion for those who were hurting. He had compassion on the sick and on the grieving. He wept with his friends when their brother died. Jesus understands our hurts and our pain unlike any other. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For do we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have a God who knows us, who's experienced loss, he's experienced grief, he's experienced suffering. And so he empathizes with us, he understands us, he loves us, and he has chased after us. I think one of the things is that, that when we truly understand who God is and how he loves us and what he has done for us, only then can we catch a glimpse of what he's doing. All right, we may never see the whole picture on this earth. We may never understand all the suffering or the hurt. Maybe we question His goodness because we don't really know who He is. Maybe when we kind of lay out that log- logical argument, God is good, God is all-powerful, evil exists, therefore God can't really exist. Maybe we come to that argument because we don't really know who God is. Maybe we doubt Him in the hard times of suffering and question His existence in those hard times of suffering because we don't even trust Him in the good times when things are easy. Maybe we struggle with this question because we have it so good. It was interesting as I was reading on this question and looking at a couple authors and speakers who've who've traveled around the world and and talk with people and, and share the truth of the gospel commented on this fact that only in North America and Europe is this question really ever asked. 
when they're talking with Christians in India and Africa and in the Middle East and in China where they're persecuted and face so much suffering, this question never comes up. Maybe because on the grand scheme of things, we have it so good that, we, that again, we, we don't really take the time to understand and know who God is. Right, that doesn't take away from the fact that, yes, is suffering real? Yes. Do we all experience it? Yes. I don't want to little that fact, but it's interesting that maybe that's at the root of this, is that we have failed to really grasp who God is and His love for us. Because when we really do, this question begins to fall away. And that really brings us to that final point. I want to kind of close with this idea is that the hope of the gospel is this. We have hope in our suffering. Because unlike any other religion, we, we cling to the hope that we have a God who came into our suffering and who suffered for us. And so as we take time to really understand who God is, as we seek to know Him and understand the incredible love He has for us, then it starts to change our perspective on the world around us and His love for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right, sometimes we ask that question, well, why doesn't God just wipe out suffering now? Right, Jesus came, Jesus died already. Why doesn't He just make everything right now? Peter says that He's not wanting anyone to perish. And goes on a little bit later in verses 13 through 15. He says, But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. All right, we're looking forward to Him. We, we don't know when. We don't know how long. But we know that God is going to make all things right. And that His patience and that His waiting and the delay that we feel, it's because He's, he's chasing after people. Because He doesn't desire that any would perish. Right? We have a loving God who has chased after us. He entered into our creation to fix our mess. He's suffered just like we have, and yet without sin. And so, as that verse in, in Hebrews said, we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy and hope. We can boldly come to God because He chased after us. There's a man by the name of Horatio Spafford who was a businessman in Chicago. He had five children, four girls and a boy. And he owned a, a lot of real estate. Well, in the course of a year, he had, he had one of those, those, the worst years ever. To start off, his, his son died. And as he's still grieving for his son, and shortly after his son passed away, is a little event that we all know as the Great Chicago Fire. 
which wiped out all of his wealth. And so to go from someone who was a very successful businessman with a, a huge family, all of a sudden feels the loss of his son and all of his wealth. And so after the fire, uh, him and his wife decided to travel along with D.L. Moody, who's a famous evangelist, and they were going to England uh, with him to tell people about the hope of Jesus. And as they're getting ready to travel, at the last minute a business deal came up, and so he stayed behind to work on some things, and the ship continues on. And a few days later, he gets a telegram from his wife, which reads this. Ship sank. I survived alone. What should I do? At sea, there was a a shipwreck. And as the, the two boats collapsed, the ship sank rapidly. His wife was one of, I think, 15 survivors. But all four daughters drowned. So very quickly, Horatio Spafford gets on the next boat to travel over and join his wife. And the ship's captain, knowing what had happened, when they get to that point in the sea, he calls Horatio Spafford up to the the deck. And he says, to the best of our estimation, this is where the ship went down. This is where your daughters died. And so Horatio Spafford, having had the worst year, having lost his son, having lost all his wealth, and now having lost all four daughters standing on that point, penned the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And in the midst of just what we, even as we're sitting, as I'm standing here with you right now, imagining the, the, the wealth of grief that he had and all the questions that he could throw at God in that moment, he wrote that song. And in the midst of that, to say that when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I think the reason that he could say that as you go on in that song, one of the other uh, verses, and I love this, he says, my sin. And it's like he takes a break. He has to pause in what he's saying. He's my sin. And then he says, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I think the way that we understand suffering, we understand grief, is we have to have God's perspective on this. That Jesus sees our hurt. He sees our suffering. He experienced it. And he entered into it for our good. And so the hope that we have is that the promise of the Bible is true. That in the end, God will make all things right. Revelations 21, 4 and 5. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that we have a high priest who understands our suffering. 
that even though we still wrestle with, with suffering and hardship and, and pain, we know that you understand and you are a good, loving God and a comforter and an encourager. And you love us more than we can ever know. Jesus, may we chase after you. May we fall more and more in love with you. And may we understand how much you love us. We ask this in your name. Amen.